Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. This is Somewhere in the Skies with Ryan Sprague. guys ryan sprague here from somewhere in the skies and welcome to a special live stream version of the podcast this week we are going to be talking to graham rendell who for some reason has not been on the show yet which is insane and i definitely had to rectify that as soon as possible uh we're going to be talking about all the latest news in the ufo world uh we're going to dig deep into the calvine ufo incident Graham knows more than a lot of people about this. So we're going to get his thoughts and opinions on that, his thoughts and opinions on all the latest UFO news, including some file releases, um, some litigious goings on in the UFO world. Uh, what else is new? And uh, a whole lot more. And we also have with us, of course, my co-pilot for the episode, Chrissy Newton, joining us as well. Um but before we do that, we were supposed to have Andy from That UFO Podcast joining us tonight. Unfortunately, he is under the weather, so we do want to send him our very best to get well soon. Uh, he was very, you know, bummed that he couldn't make it tonight, but we'll make up for it soon with a Somewhere in the Skies That UFO Podcast crossover. But without further ado, let's bring them in. We have with us Chrissy Newton. And Graham, welcome to the show, guys. Yay. Hello. Hello. This is going to be fun. I mean, we kind of just threw this together. We got some stuff to talk about. It's going to be super laid back. Um, anyone in the chat, feel free. Uh, super chat's open. If you want to ask Graham some questions tonight or me or Chrissy, please feel free. But yeah, Graham, before we even get to UFO stuff, you just had a mini reunion albeit for about 30 seconds with some of your friends over there at UAP Media UK. <laughs> you got to tell me, man. What was that all about? I caught it on Twitter. Um, tell us a little about this little reunion you had. Well, it's a stupid thing, really, because we were talking about this on uh, Priscilla Stone's show on Saturday night on the UAP Book Club. And it just so happened that where I live in the Thumberland in Northern England, it's on the main railway line from um, down London up into Scotland. And Vinny and Dan, um, who are part UAP media were going to be part of a documentary or putting together a documentary in Scotland and they were traveling effectively past where I live um, and the, the train happened to stop at one of the stations near where I live and I knew what time of day it was I was in the area and I said look guys I'm I'll be there if you want to get off the train say hello for 30 seconds how long it is 
because that's how long the train stops for, sort of thing. <laughs> Maybe a minute, you sort of thing. Um, we'll have a quick, you know, and, and then he said, yeah, we'll take, we'll take some pictures because it's all part of the experience. And they're up for, you know, a daft thing like that. And, and I, I'm quite spontaneous occasionally with these kind of crazy little notions. So we'll put it together uh, over the course of the morning. And um, I had, uh, on my app, I could work out when the train was coming in. So I happened to be right at the time. Um, they told me the coach they were in. So I knew where to stand on the platform except the train company had swapped the coaches around for some reason. So I was in completely the wrong place. That's why I was running down the platform to make sure I was at the right place. It was all crazy. It was all kind of spur of the moment thing. It was, you know, just a kind of daft carry on. Um, but, and we're, we're all crazy anyway. So, yeah, it, it, but it, it played well on social media. So, you know, it, it gave people a bit of a laugh. And, uh, people, and when people think, when I say things like this off the cuff, people just think I'm joking. Sometimes I actually do it. <laughs> <laughs> you actually Great made though. it happen i know it's so cool that you guys were able to like synchronize that and make it yeah. happen because it's it funny. you know it's and i've met you in person which was an amazing experience but the fact of the matter is like between you me and chrissy we all live in different countries literally different yeah. countries and yeah. um and rarely get to meet so getting that kind of like you know inside um you know, inside, I guess, perspective of seeing you guys meet up and hug and like, you know, do those little things. It really makes me feel like I'm there with you. So oh, I love great. stuff like that. Because COVID has like made people apart and, and they can't work together now, you know, well, back then. And you couldn't live together and you couldn't see friends. And so everything was done virtually. And it was great being able to see the guys from UAP Media last October and then meeting you and meeting Lou because those were things we couldn't do beforehand. So yeah. it, it was wonderful. Um, but it, actually, that doesn't seem like, it almost seems like five minutes ago that, you know, I was sitting around a bar table with you, Ryan, you know, I swapping know. stories and all the rest of it. It was, it was a fun night. It was a fun, it was a little too fun of a night. I'm not going to lie. I think I had a misty time experience after a few of those, uh, few of those whiskeys with you guys. Yeah. But, um, no, that was, and I was nervous about that. I'm like, I'm meeting up with a bunch of these British people. Um, I don't know what's going to happen. I honestly don't know what's going to happen, but you guys were so hospitable and um made me feel at home and we had a great time we really really did um and one of the things you and i talked about around the uh the bar there was the calvin ufo incident yeah um i'm just teasing that now we'll get into it in a little bit um but that was a lot of fun um christopher plain is here i do want to give some of these guys a shout out (laughs) jason sdk jesse aaron desario is here good day good day um Let's see. Jason, Faye, I said Esmeralda. Thank you, guys. Thank you, everyone, for being here. Um, Again, if you want to ask any questions, feel free to put them in the chat there. We'll get to them later in the show. What Um, you say is I'm going to meet Christopher Plain and I'm going to bop him on the nose for some of the things he said about me before. (laughs) No! I've actually, Chris and I have hung out together, too, and Chris is in in California. So the first time I met Chris, I was like, you are exactly the person that I would imagine on social media and then i've met through the debrief and it was yeah he's a special character he knows that yeah he's a a, a good guy yeah he really is i love him so is space oddities thank you for the super chat there man good morning brother this is gary hello gary thank you my man thank you so much for the the super chat there we appreciate that um well let's i guess guys dive into some of the news 
Um, yeah. And I use the term current a little, uh, <laughs> a little liberally here. Um, some of them are very current, but I do want to talk about, cause he's been a busy guy. I haven't been able to get him on the show, um, but that's John Greenwald over at the black vault. And um, he recently um, somewhat recently was able to obtain part of the classified UAP report, which was very exciting. And, um, very telling when we actually saw the pages, it was exactly like Stanton Friedman has always said in his lectures, like it's redacted beyond comprehension. And there were literally pages completely blacked out, but there were some small gems in that classified report that John kind of dug up. Um, so I want to get your guys thoughts on that. But before we do that, I do have a brief video that John actually did with The Hill here in the United States about this. So if you don't mind, I'm going to play that. And then we'll get your guys' comments on the other side. Is that cool? Sounds good. Awesome. All right. Give me one sec. Here we go. What's interesting is with the resources of the U.S. military, they couldn't, they couldn't put them in those categories. So you, you, you have those possible explanations, but the military wasn't able to de- definitively say these fit into a classified platform or foreign adversary drone technology because you can admit that without blowing any classified secrets yet they weren't able to do it so it's a short list of what's left i mean the general public wants to know hey is this alien well of course you're not going to see that in the report nor do you uh but they didn't rule it out and they said that last year and this report solidifies that that you know that's that's on the short list of possible explanations in this document, although discouraging that it is heavily redacted, absolutely solidifies the secrecy of, uh, around this phenomena, whatever it is. It likely has multiple explanations, and ironically, the report reflects that as well, but it likely has multiple explanations. Uh, but the bottom line is, is, is the military and the U.S. government has a secret here, and they don't want to tell the general public about it. And you look at all these redactions, and again, although discouraging, that in itself tells a story. And when you really sit down and and digest the document, some may theorize, oh, this is just about our classified system platforms that that detected whatever these craft are. And you can see in certain areas, yes, that is likely the explanation for the redactions. But when you really look at some of the other areas, they don't want to tell you the capabilities of what they these UAP are, these mysterious unknown craft. And the explanation to to that would not be classified, in my opinion. Uh, we know our systems can detect speeds, can detect altitudes. Uh, so that's that's not classified. They won't tell you where UAPs are flying or how fast. I don't think that that should be classified, yet it is. Another key section is what they look like. Uh, they, they, they label it common shapes, and then another area is uncommon shapes. That's entirely redacted as well. They won't even tell you the visual representation of what these craft look like. So let's say we are dealing with a drone type of technology. Well, there's only so many shapes a drone can be, and is that in itself, without any identifying information on a, on a diagram or a picture, uh, without any identifying information, is that classified? My answer would be no. Yet they won't tell you a single visual observation on what shape these are. So it, again, it, it really solidifies the secrecy behind what these UAP really are. So 
I mean, I think the shape thing is what people were really kind of um, theorizing over and whatnot out of this new highly redacted thing. But um, yeah, what did you guys think? What were your initial thoughts when John said, guess what, guys, I've got the classified report. Um, and then when we actually see it, it's like, oh, okay. Like some people were, again, excited. Some were deflated. Um, but welcome to the world of UFOs. So yeah, yeah. Graham, what did you think when you first saw that the classified report had been made public? Well, I know it took nine months for the information to come through because John, I believe, had put the request through at the end of June, it was the 28th of June last year. So that was just after the after the initial report, the preliminary report came out. So he was quick off the mark with that. Um, seeing the re- redactions, that's no real surprise, I think, to people who have been in this game for a long time. The, mm-hmm. you know, the information comes out in drips and drabs, and you're lucky if you get just that kind of breadcrumb if you like, you know, there's that little extra bit of information that inches you towards where you want to be, but you're not getting there still. So it's interesting the amount of information that's come up. But yes, I agree with John about what he said. Why can't they release information about the, the altitudes? Why can't they release information about the shapes? Why is that still considered secret? That That's, you know, quite puzzling. I get why they're saying that they still can't release the information about the sensor platforms they're using to determine you know, the information that they've got in the report. But the rest of it just seems a bit weird. Um, you know, maybe somebody who knows much more about this can explain it because I'm a bit of a loss to, to work out, like he is, why they're still keeping that information under wraps. To say that, you know, they're seeing UAP from, well, you can fill in the blanks and you can try and work out what would be there. And it looks from the altitudes that it could be as, as little as 100 feet up to several thousand, you know, tens of thousands of feet. Why aren't they... Why does that need to be secret still? I, I really don't understand. Right, right. And I, I agree with you. Like, there there are certain things that if they put it out there, it could be very telling about um, advanced aircraft of our own here in the United States. And again, the... And this is what has always kind of irked me. And Christy, I'd love your thoughts on this too. Um Ever since people like Elizondo and even the New York Times were saying these things like, well, it's definitely not Russia or China, the things that we're seeing, I've always had a very hard time uh, accepting that. Um, I also have had a hard time accepting that it's not ours. And a part of me wants to think the reason they're saying it's not Russia, it's not China, it's also not ours in the United States, that they want Russia, that they want China to think, oh, it's definitely the United States. They're just not saying it is. So we better be careful um, what we do and you know where we poke and prod with these sorts of black budget things or surveillance drones or whatnot. Um, again, maybe I'm way off the mark on that, but um, I do think there is a very... Uh, I don't even know how to put it, a very um, shadowy intelligence game going on here with mm-hmm. with the way that the United States is portraying the UFO question in the media right now and how it goes to rival nations and whatnot. So I don't know. I, am I way off on this? What do you guys think, Christy? I, what do you think? I, I agree with you. I've had questions of, you know, we can't just believe that it's not foreign adversaries, even though they keep telling us that they're not. We've known disinformation campaigns, misinformation campaigns, all of it has happened for so long. Why can't this be part of that? You know, and, and mm-hmm. I'm still mindful for it, too. And we just keep looking at Chinese technology that keeps increasing, which is unbelievable. Their drone supremacy, everything. So I'm I'm still on the same 
same wavelength as you, Ryan. I'm not 100% sure that it's not ours. Uh, and also, why can't it be both? You know, that conversation yeah. isn't having had right now. Like, why can't it be UFOs and why can't it be foreign adversaries? And then there'd be blurring of lines. I can see that it would make sense. And when you're using media or, you know, the UFO community to help push information that might be, that will be protecting, let's say, our own you know, advanced technologies, it, it would make sense, even though, you know, you can't do that, but I wouldn't be surprised. So I think we still have to be mindful and be, you know, and keep looking to see if that's what the case is. And, you know, who knows, we might find out maybe 10 to 20 years from down the road that maybe some of that was our technology or foreign adversaries. We're in a very interesting time right now when it comes to, yeah, anything defense. So, yeah. Graham, what I do think, you think? I, I, I think the, um, the the US have a history of fielding advanced technology in, in mm-hmm. conflicts. I mean, certainly st- the stealth fighter was yep. employed in Panama in 1989 and then in the Gulf War in 91. So it's not as if they, you know, they keep these things under wraps forever. Now, I agree to some extent about, you know, possibly the US um, intelligence and, and military communities keeping things under wraps for various reasons. But also when you look at the Russian drone technology that they're using in Ukraine at the moment, um, and you look at the, some of the things on social media that the, the Ukrainians have shot down. Um, in fact, today there was uh, in, um, some footage of a of an Orlan 10 drone um, that the, the Ukrainians had shot down. This is a Russian um, a reconnaissance platform. It's effectively a radio controlled aircraft. Um, and it's nothing sophisticated. It's something that, you know, some hobbyist in America could build out of carbon fiber, strip a, put a, a piston engine on it. And it actually had a Canon SLR camera, um, uh, with a fixed lens on it. And that was its, basically, that was its reconnaissance, uh, capability. And it had a, it had some gizmo in the back that it, it controlled the shutter mechanism and, and the, um, and the video feed. So it could be, and then, so it could beam the information back or, or store it rather. So when it was brought back to base, it could download the information. So it's fairly unsophisticated technology. Now you would expect that if they were trying to win a war, they would feel some of their real latest kit to get the job done. And yet they've got these kind of things that, you know, you can buy in a probably a hobby store, which it, it seems very, very strange. Um, they've got one called the Orland 30, which is actually twice as heavy. It goes further. It, it's got a 16-hour um, endurance, I think. Um, it's, a bit more com- uh, it's a bit more complicated, but effectively it's still a radio-controlled airplane. Now, they're not going to be the kind of things that have, you know, have been reported in these UAP incidents that the U.S. Navy have been mobbed by these drones. Um, but there might be something else along the, the you know, along the, the, the pipeline that they've come up with. But from that technology, I can't see how they've leapt to something like that. The Chinese, okay, that's a different story because, yes, Chris is right. You know, they've, they've come up with this amazing technology over the years. But I'm not entirely sure they're there yet with that either. Uh, they can do, I think, some of the things that the drought that have been reported. So you've got, you know, high speed, you've got loitering, you've got this kind of swarming technology. But putting mm-hmm. all that together in one platform, I think that might be where the kind of, you know, that might be where people fall down in terms of being able to integrate all this technology into one package to get it to do everything that's being reported. And I think that might be a little bit too far for even the best kind of technology at the, at the moment, right across the world, America included. Yeah. And I also, also, yeah sorry, just one last thing before you, before yeah. um, we mentioned, you mentioned before about, you know, these things eventually come out and yes, stealth did come out about 15 years after the first have blue prototypes in 1975 uh, and then senior trend, which actually was the F-17. And then it came out in 1988, uh, I think that they brought it out in publicly. Now things like the, the Calvin object, which we'll talk about, which, 
probably was US tech. And certainly Astra, the AV6 that crashed at Bos- Boscombe Down in 1994, those things have never been unveiled. So, you know, and this is what, 30 odd years later. So why are they keeping those things under wraps? Um, so, you know, yes, okay, at one time they were unveiling these things some years later, but it seems that stopped. And, and why is that? And why has that happened? And are we going to see, you know, these revelations in future? Are the US uh, military going to come out and say, yeah, we've had this thing under wraps for years and now you can know about it, but that doesn't seem to happen anymore. And why is that? Right, especially with the severe over-classification problem here in the United States, too. Like, it's so frustrating that we're learning now that this new Pentagon group or program or merged chimeras of different uh, UFO programs within the government here in the United States, that they're basically saying 100% of this stuff is going to be classified, which is so like disheartening knowing that we've come this far, we fought this fight. And once again, um, our good friend, Susan Goff is going to be getting all the UFO stuff and going to be in charge of everything that gets released to the public for media purposes and, and whatnot. And yeah, it's, it's frustrating, Graham. It really is. Um, Christy, how we doing? Can you hear me? Good. Yeah, my I keep losing. That's why I had to put my different headset. Oh, in. no worries. I, keep, I can hear you guys. Or I can't hear you at one point. So anyway, no worries. Don't mind me hey, that's live streaming. No, 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 no. Do your technology. Thing. Do your thing. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. Um, well, you know, in terms of, I guess, releasing or whatnot, let's get to this other big story that broke recently and has kind of garnered a lot of really sensational headlines and that was um from the sun and i can't believe i'm saying that like we're going by a breaking story from the sun (laughs) but we are that's where we're at in 2022 um but this headline was 1500 pages released um on uap related to brain damage burns and unaccounted for pregnancies um Okay, so that's where we're at now when it comes to mainstream media coverage of the UAP topic. I'm going to read a brief paragraph here. The Pentagon documents state that people who observed uh, UFOs frequently displayed a cluster of similar physical symptoms, injuries consistent with exposure to electromagnetic radiation, such as burns, heart ailments, and sleep disturbances. A report speculates that these could be caused by energy-related propulsion systems and warns that the underlying technology could pose a threat to the United States' interests. Um, let's see here. Additionally, in cases that would not seem out of place in an X-Files episode, there were accounts of apparent abduction and unaccounted for pregnancies. Okay. So, you know, we've, we've heard these stories from Gary Nolan recently, um, with Vice and whatnot about, um, you know, the sort of connections and comparisons that could be made between UFO witnesses and, and stuff like that, um, both physically and, and uh, psychologically, too. But um, what do you guys think of this 1,500-page release that I, The Sun, I believe they said they've been working on for almost four years now? Yeah. I, am yeah. I correct in that? Yeah, oh, though they yeah. forwarded their yeah, the FOIA request. The question I have on a, on a PR, exactly. Like, when I first read that, when that came out, I went... Hold on. So we look at like Susan Goff and everyone else. I would like to know, obviously, her thoughts, which we'll never know her exact opinions on that. But 
when you're leaking something to the sun or you're sending out of a FOIA request to the sun, why not? There had to have been other people that have probably submitted this, I would imagine. Mm-hmm. So my question is why the sun? Um, and why wasn't there any, a larger statement around that? Like, it, it seems very right. weird to me. Why release to a tabloid when we know that it's a tabloid? And when, if these stories are that important, why wouldn't it, another statement follow it? So I have, and we also know that there's been tons of burns and, and things that have happened to people over the years with UFO connections. And, and we know that that is, we know that that that's happened and it's in multiple stories that are connected with UFOs and experiencers. But the question is why just release this like this to the sun and then just not have another co-statement to go along with it. I just, there, there's a lot of like, Hmm, this doesn't make sense. And I would imagine that Susan Goff knows what she's doing there. She knew, she knows it's going out. It's, it's her job is to watch everything that we're doing right now. So yeah. I, there's, there's a lot of, Hmm, I don't, I don't know. It doesn't mean I, it doesn't mean that some of these things aren't true. It's just the dissemination of information is just very weird in my mind. Yeah. There's it an is. interesting, there's, there's an interesting reason for that. And that would be credibility. So exactly. if you, re, if you release uh, information on that line to a tabloid, then it's a case of, well, it's a tabloid, isn't it? It's not a, it's not a broadsheet. It's not a, a well right. respected organ or as, as respected as it maybe should be. And the, the sun, the mirror, the star in, in, in England, in, in Britain rather, you know that they're considered laughing stocks occasionally for the kind of stories that they they produce, the star especially. So you know if you give them to if you give them to the Times or the Telegraph or um, you know a paper or the Guardian in the UK, then that would be different. But that's not where it goes, and it went to the Sun, the presumably the U, the US version, of the Sun or, or the UK version, and. Well, that destroys the credibility straight away because of the way they'll treat the story. Um, I'm not saying that the journalists at the Sun are, are, are no good. They're, they're, they're mm-hmm. fine in, in the times of reporting they do. But it's not the same as giving it to, say, the BBC to, to mm-hmm. run with the story. You know, so it, it's they're not being, you know, they're not being untruthful in giving the information to them and the sun aren't being untruthful in reporting it. It's just that the kind of that credibility level is not as high as it would be if a much more respected publication or television, you know, sort of um, um, kind of, you know, the, the um, not Fox, uh, BBC got a hold of it and said, you know, here, we're going to run with this story. Um, but yes, Chrissy, you're right. You know, there have been stories of, um, you know, effects. So you've got uh, the Falcon Lake incident. Was that 67 mm-hmm. in Canada um, yeah. where the, 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 the guy had um, that kind of grid mark of burns on his body because he'd yeah. been hit by the exhaust from a craft when it was taking off. So and that was a famous story. The, the Cash Landrum incident from 1980. Um, one of them had, or they had burns which were reminiscent of radiation. Yes, without the kind of death effects, if you like. Um, so, yeah, you've got cases, on, and I've got a case in my book from 1945 of a bomber crew who not only was there an electrical, electromagnetic possible effect on the aircraft um, uh, mechanics, but also the actual, the crew had effects themselves. So you've got a two-sided thing there. So, yeah, there are stories, um, you know, from right throughout the, the kind of history of UFOs about effects on not just machinery, the cars, et cetera, but also on people. Yeah. And I also think that if anybody who's experienced this and has, you know, any type of effect that's happened to them, you know, or mark on their body or any, like anything physical, when you see that story released from, from the sun and then comes out, you're probably shaking your head going, you know, they're discrediting it, like you said, and, and that's unfortunate on that on its own as well, because 
you know, even when the sun picks it up, we still had live science and a lot of other mainstream media take the story and run with it too. So it doesn't mean that it's not going to go into the mainstream, but I'm curious if even the New York times would run a story like this, like, you know, you need a lot of back information and it would love to like have Ralph Blumenthal or Leslie on this to, to speak to that too. It'd be really interesting to see their perspective. If that, if that was leaked to them through a foyer um, that, the times would even, would they even acknowledge it? Because sometimes they don't pick up other stories from individual, like from Ralph or Leslie. Right. So I'm curious to see if they would even consider it. Yeah. Yeah. Or the BBC would. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, with the New York times, Ralph and Leslie have both said like how long it took uh, to um, source everything and vet everything just to get that first article out. And then you're right. The times wouldn't run, um, subsequent articles that they had written because mm-hmm. they couldn't back it up because they didn't have it. Um, you know what I find interesting too with this, this story is, um, kind of the feedback loop, I call it phenomenon of, um, mm-hmm. uh, people like Elizondo have gone on record saying, you know, where we got a lot of our information about UFOs is from you guys, from ufologists from the many books written from MUFON case files and they're like you guys did the heavy lifting and a lot of the stuff we looked at we pulled from that research from those articles from those books blah 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 to try to find answers and see what you guys came up with um so i find that really interesting is that what we're seeing with this 1500 page thing where did these pages come from what are the sources for them? And I've seen people say a lot of it came from past MUFON investigations and whatnot. Mm-hmm. So there you go. Um, you know, it's not so much these are government files on UFOs, but they're merely case files from MUFON, from NICAP, from New Fork, from QFOS, from blah, 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 every sort of organization you can think of that they've kind of compiled and said, look, here's some files, give them to the public because they're already out there anyway. Um, it, so I, it's kind of, again, this like constant feedback loop of where we're reading and hearing the same stories over and over, uh, because these have been made public. These are declassified. These are stories of people saying they were kidnapped by aliens and impregnated by aliens or, you know, had strange psychic abilities after they saw a UFO. It's not so much the government investigated that. It's just that they said, oh, cool. Let's put that in the file and release it to the sun. I, I don't know. I don't yeah, know. but I think we'd even see, I would say 20 years ago when a tabloid released it, you know, they would just stay like the Inquirer would release something and then it would just stay in the Inquirer, right? Uh, yeah. But mainstream would never pick it up. So this is the first time we're ever seeing that mainstream is looking at a tabloid and running their story too. Like that. Yep. Like what kind of media world do we live in now? And you know, it's you very, yeah, it's, <laughs> the evolution is very interesting. So if the sun has this, what else is the sun going to come out with if they have other foyer crests, I'd imagine? And what is the government going to give them? Yeah. Right. And what, what if they are the ones to break some huge <laughs> mega ultra story? Like, are we to believe it then? And is that the plan to release it through something like that or the National Enquirer here in the United yeah. States? I, I don't know. Um, Christopher Plain said, did Ryan's UFO sighting get him pregnant? Because that would be <laughs> awesome. <laughs> I'm sorry. Oh, I have no comment on that, Chris, our resident comedian at the debrief. But, um, <laughs> I have been having a lot of weird cravings lately of like ice cream and pickles, so there might be something to that. Been a little moody, but um, I don't want to <laughs> go too down the 
the sexist route there. So I'm going to stop talking about <laughs> pregnancy. Um, <laughs> do you guys have anything else on this story before we move on to our third and possibly most ridiculous news story to come out? <laughs> no, I'm good. Let's, let's Fair go enough. Good. All right. Let's do it. Let's do it. Showtime encounters trademark lawsuit over UFO docuseries. Um, so apparently I can't say UFO. I'm about to get sued um, by Bill Burns. But yeah, let's read this brief recap of this story. UFO magazine is the owner of the trademark for entertainment in the nature of a television series and motion picture film series. Um, let's see for the term UFO. Uh, the trademark was registered in 2007 and renewed in 2017. UFO Magazine argues that Showtime's docuseries, the one by J.J. Abrams, for anyone who hasn't seen it yet, um, it devalues its plans to release an identically titled movie or show. As recently as September of 2020, UFO Magazine is a sponsorship role, um, has a sponsorship role with the Virtual International UFO Congress, sought collaborators for development of a movie um so yeah basically jj abrams and crew are being sued for calling their docuseries ufo um that's it that's the story what do you guys think about it i i can't believe we're having this conversation graham what do you think man it's bonkers that, that's a good old-fashioned english word bonkers it's yeah. crazy so how the hell do you trademark uh, uh, you know, letters that are being in use for what, like seventy years, seventy-five years. How do you how do you manage that? How do you put, a term do you by have, the U.S. Have, Air Force? No, no. Yeah, yeah. Do you have to Sorry persuade to a judge or something to come up and say, yeah, okay, I agree with that? How, how does it work? Um, it's 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 stupid. Does that mean now that some I could now go out and trademark LOL and then get a lot of people <laughs> to pay me because they use it every day on their phone? Do, does it does that work? Because if not, I'm going to do it. You also have to move Chris Blaine might do it before I do. He might, I know. He's working on it right now. I was gonna say, Graham, you gotta move to the US, man, because we are the most litigious place on the planet. And look, (laughs) someone tried to trademark the term secret space program a few years back. We won't say his name because we don't want to give him publicity. Um, but I thought it was hilarious. So I made like a parody commercial saying like, hi, I'm Ryan Sprague, and I'm trademarking the term UFO. So anytime you use it now, and I put like the ka-ching sound behind it, making money every time anyone says UFO, and I did this as a joke, and now here we are in 2022, and someone is suing someone for using the term UFO. Chrissy, you are our resident PR person. What do you make of all this? Like, Good for you for trademarking that. And it is entertainment and you know the business. So good for you for doing it. But come on. Like, you really think you're going to use it? And I think that's that he was he was waiting for this moment. I think that's what was happening. It was waiting. It's like somebody, for example, when they have a song that comes out and they use a similar riff and then they, they don't go and sue them right away. They wait like 20 years for the money to build up and then they sue them because they know they're going to cash out. Um, I think like tons of artists have gone through this, but it's the same kind of idea. I think they were just waiting on it, but I also want to know if this documentary is going to come out. So let's apparently, if you are, 
then what is this? You know, you've a you've leaked your new documentary apparently that's coming out, or that you're going to be doing something. That I think that's what he was saying, correct? Mm-hmm. UFO magazines yeah. working on a doc and taking the name. So okay, well you leaked that. That's not a good thing for PR. You should have maybe this is, wasn't your plan for release because if you did, you would speak more about your documentary and why it was in planning. The one thing I will say for them though is that they gave them a couple chances to respond, and JJ Abrams' team, or sorry, not JJ Abrams. It was Showtime didn't respond to it and ignored it. So, you know, that's they could have made a statement or something else related to it. But there's probably legal reasons why they didn't respond. I would obviously imagine they know what they're doing. But it it is ridiculous. Like, it's just, it's so. It is. And, you know. It's cash cowing out of it. It's it's pay dirt. They're just looking for the, if you really care about the topic, you care about the money. And that's. Or the money. Yeah, exactly. and it's a domain squatter situation, Aaron says, yeah. and that's true. People will buy domains for websites that they know people yeah. will search for um, just to make money. And I understand, like, living, we all live in, not all of us, but most of us live in a capitalistic society. And, um, like, if you can get ahead somehow, you're going to do it. And yeah. I just, I'm going through um, right now the trademark experience with, somewhere in the skies because I've been doing a show for almost two years and everyone was like, that's trademarked. Right. And I'm like, yeah, totally for sure. Yeah. (laughs) Um, so now anyone watching is going to try to go beat me to it. Um, I, I should probably cut this from the, the recorded version of this show. Um, I'm digging myself (laughs) into a corner, but I'm just being honest. Like I'm dealing with this, this sort of thing right now with somewhere in the skies. And it's true. Like you have to get a trademark for a certain, um, entertainment purpose or television. Christy, you, you and I know this very well. Like mm-hmm. certain things are, um, you know, we're legally bound to when it comes to television or, um, or this or that. Uh, it, it, it's just the way that it is. Um, but it does make me truly wonder what, uh, UFO magazine or, uh, by proxy, Bill Burns, the owner of UFO magazine, uh, what his end goal is with this. Mm-hmm. Is it just for publicity? Is it, for the money or does he really think like he owns the term UFO? If that's the case, like the dude's lost it completely, completely. Yeah. My thing is just, and do how much do you really care about the topic then? Mm-hmm. That's just my, you know, my thing. Are you here to just cash out and make pay dirt and make some money and then leave? And that's kind of what I'm seeing here. And to be honest, as a PR person, it's bad publicity anyway. You're going to have a film. If anyone, people might watch your film after this, but they're not maybe yeah. not going to respect you as much. And to be honest, if you're going to stay in a community that is, you know, is worldly and global around this topic, then, you know, I would, and making money off people, they, they might actually might not consume thinking that too. I, I know I might not watch it if I know that this person is just trying to make money and that's it. Like, I think right. people are allowed to make money, obviously in the UFO community, because people do have to have a living, but I don't think that you should be using words that everyone uses like UFO, you know, or flying saucer, you know, like see Kenneth Arnold trying to, you know, make, <laughs> make a, you know, trying to copyright that. So like, it just, I think it's kind of ridiculous to be, yeah, honest, well, that, to be honest. As, as an yeah. author, I've used the word UFO, well, UFOs in my book title. And I may well use the term flying saucer in another book that I might write in the future. But that doesn't mean to say I'm going to trademark it. And I wouldn't expect anybody then to sue me because I've used it because it's in common usage. Um, you know, people use it all the time in, in books and magazines and websites and all the rest of it. And I can't see how you could. But then again, that's a, that's a British perspective. We're not as, you know, litigious as uh, you guys across there are. So. Thank God. <laughs> we have For to tell sure. him too. We're, like, we're getting there, doing, though. 
Yeah, we have to tell him too. I'm like, it's UAP now. I'm like, come on, we're moving forward. Yeah. He's probably going to start trying to trademark that as well. Right? Yeah, I know. Doing Don't it right give now. him ideas. Like, oh, no. exactly. I know. We've given too many people too many ideas. Nightgazer right. said, be right back, trademarking. Aaron said, I'm going to go register UAP. It's so true. It's so true. Um, so Christopher Plain asked, um, will Graham be taking any questions about um, World War II and UFOs? And I'm starring the questions, Chris. We'll get to those towards the end with Graham for sure. Um, I definitely do want to talk about your book, Graham, and and your upcoming project. If there's anything you can tease with that, okay. but um, before we do that, before we do that, Graham, there is something I do want to talk to you about, and it has a little something to do with this official somewhere in the skies mug that is not trademarked. I should get on that too. <laughs> um, with that lovely tic tac there now. One of the big things I appreciate about um, what you do on Twitter and what uh, people like Witness Citizen do is dig up all these documents and files of cases, um, you know, even pre-World War II, but um, kind of during that time period and kind of comparing it to things going on now. And that's what I find most fascinating. Even as decades and decades pass, there are some similarities between UAP that are being reported. And I know that you have come across a few cases. Um, you'd mentioned to me back in the, uh, the early fifties that might or might not have some connections with the tic tac things we're seeing or the, the Nimitz invent on a more broad spectrum. Um, so yeah, is that something you wanna you wanna touch on here before we move on to the Calvine incident, one of my favorites? Yeah, I can talk about that for a few minutes. Um, cool. So if you cast your mind back to even before I brought the book on the Foo Fighters out last year in April, um, I uh, did a, an article for the debrief about the similarities between the some of the or the World, the World War Two reporting and the Nimitz case from two thousand and four. And there was a specific incident that happened, well, there were two actually incidents that happened in 1943, one of which I covered in the article, which were fairly similar. But also I found since I'm doing another book, which you mentioned before, that I am actually writing another book at the moment about some cases a bit later on. And then this is not a Foo Fighter book, this is something else. But in the course of looking through um, some of the the documents from Sign and from Grudge and from Blue Book, I found some witness cases. Um, Now, one of them is fairly well known. It's the George Gorman case from, um, which is from the 1st of October 1948. And he was a, a, a North Dakota Air National Guard pilot who effectively got into a, a dogfight with a, a white light over Fargo um, um, in, in North Dakota uh, one night after he was coming back to base. And I'll just read a little bit out of the report if I can. And this is from a, a checklist of unidentified flying objects, which was incident number 172 from the Project Sign files. And Project Sign was the first official UFO investigation by the US Air Force. And what he mentions is, um, he said, this is a quote from, from the actual um, information that was put in the report. And he says, the closest Gorman ever got to the object was a head-on pass, at which time the object passed over him at less than 500 feet. It then appeared to him to be from six to eight inches in diameter. It was white with no apparent glare and a clear-cut edge. It apparently had depth. It did not, uh, it did not seem an exact ball, but it appeared flat. Realizing that the speed of the object was too much for him, Gorman attempt, attempted to cut it off in turns. At this time, his fighter was under full power, speed varying from 300 to 400 miles an hour. The object circled to the left. He cut it back to it for a head-on pass. The pass was made of 5,000 feet, the object approaching head-on until a collision seemed inevitable. 
It then veered and passed 500 feet or less above, over the top of him. He chandelled, which is a type of manoeuvre that a fighter pilot would do, and then initiated a pass at Gorman. So it was actually you know, reacting to him, um, if you like, mm. And and and, rea- and it, almost in the same kind of vein as the Nimitz encounter, where they were going round in circles, and Fravor was trying to cut the corner, if you like, on the Tic Tac. Now, this is a kind of similar thing there. That in the report, he mentions that Gorman tries to cut the corner to get behind this whatever this thing was, um, and there was a series of, and this thing was making head-on passes at him. Now, that's not the only one, and you can look then to 1952. And over Oak Ridge, Tennessee, which is where the uh, Atomic Energy Commission facility was, that actually managed to manufacture the material for the atom bombs during World War II there. And it was a fairly sensitive area. Obviously, it was an atomic facility. So anything that was reported strange over that area fighter pilots responded to it. They were, you know, they were scrambled from nearby bases. And this, this one is another Air National Guard. He's a Tennessean Air National Guard pilot. This is from uh, June 1952, and he's flying an F-47 Thunderbolt. And again, it's a blinking white light flying around, making passes at him. He turns to meet the pass, and this thing pulled up to 4,500 feet above him. No silhouette visible, only a white light. And so there's another report of a dogfight happening between an aircraft and an unidentified flying object. Again, that's culled from the official report that ended up in in the investigation files. And one final one, if I can, this one's from from much later, and this involves 1954. This is June 1954, and a Lieutenant Rowe, who was from the Ohio Air National Guard, again uh, flying a Mustang, such as the George Gorman case from 1948. And this is over Dayton, Ohio, where, again, a strange object follows them back from a flight from Columbus, and then they get into a dogfight. And this is just a little quick quote from the from the report again. Um, he mentions that he made a regular fighter turns into the object, but at all times it turned with him. Um, and so that's one of the quotes. It seemed to be slightly above me at all times. That's another one. He thinks it's a jet, but it, it, it does things that a jet can't do. So these are all official reports. And it, it's it's rather strange how these things just keep cropping up time after time and time again in the official reporting. Now, I know that likes of Sign, Grudge, and Blue Book got a slating and have had continuous slating from UFO enthusiasts over the years because of you know, the way they treat uh, witnesses, etc. Um, you know, uh, well, Blue Book especially later on uh, in its existence. But actually, the information itself is, is, is gold dust, you know, in terms of the detail that's got in it. And I think a lot of people have written off these, these reports because of the association with the, the mechanisms that were used to try and write them off for mundane, you know, reasons such as Venus and, and meteors and all the rest of it. But the information's solid. It comes from the pilots themselves and it all builds up to make a, to, to build a picture up of all these things that are going on, which were oddly reminiscent of the 2005 incident, albeit the aircraft are different and the you know the, the, the capabilities are slightly different, but the actual you know, mechanics of the situation are quite are quite similar in terms of the dogfight and the inability of the pilots to be able to recognise or get or actually get the better of or intercept what these things were. Wow. wow, it's so interesting. Yeah, and you know, you bring up, know. you know, that's just the U.S. I mean, mm. uh, Chrissy and I spoke to Daniel Otis over um, at Vice recently about mm-hmm. the uh, hundreds of files he got from 
Transport Canada and the Canadian government where there were cases as well of, you know, these UFOs having quote unquote like games or dog fights in so many words with UAP. And the only reason he was able to get those files is uh, some of them were through NORAD and you're able to get those as a Canadian in Canada mm-hmm. where we still. can't in the United yeah. States still. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I, I think it's fascinating that we can even cross this against different governments and countries where these dogfight things are happening with similar white lighted UFOs or white oblong shaped craft. And the fact that they're seeing them in the fifties and now we're seeing them in the, the, you know, the later aughts. And like, what does that tell us? Are we seeing the same craft? Why are we seeing the same technology displayed in 50 and now in 2022? Like, have they not updated their craft or <laughs> what's the deal here? Or is it just, um, pilot, not pilot error, but pilot perception or witness perception? Um, I don't know. I don't know. We can make I- patterns of anything. Yeah, I would. Well, it also goes back to cultural feedback loops. I'm like fascinated by them, to be honest, like the psychology around how we, you know, different, different centuries or different times seeing, you know, every decade we see a a UFO and it looks a certain way. And and they say that it might be a projection, right, of what we how we've Mm -hmm. evolved as a society. And so we're projecting these UFOs or these images because then pop culture takes it and then pop culture blows it up and then people see their sightings and then it gets reconfirmed and then it happens again. So but what happens is we're seeing in cultural feedback loops is that you're looking at 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s, you know, we keep going. Those crafts have changed, but now we're seeing that they're staying the same. So it really does change the definition of a culture feedback loop because the culture feedback loop would say that, well, it's just as we evolve as humans and as we have evolved, the image and the projection is evolving as well. But we're not, it's kind of not seeing that if we're seeing Tic Tacs from the 50s and they're coming back now. So. Yeah, and I, I just, I, this just dawned on me, which I can't believe it took me this long, but like Graham's entire book, UFOs Before Roswell, like covering the early inception of the Foo Fighter phenomenon, that's like the most prevalent type of UFO today. So yeah. we have kind of come full circle where we went from lights, dog fighting with these planes. No one knows who they belong to or what they were doing there. Um, and like, then we went to solid craft of saucers and triangles and this and that. And now the most reported UFOs seem to be these plasma-like orbs or Foo Fighter-esque phenomena happening, which is, it's crazy. It's crazy. I, I can't think of a more ample time for your book to have come out, Grant, and to be completely honest, because again... Foo Fighters are making a comeback, apparently. Apparently, I don't, I, don't think, I don't think they ever went away. I think if you look at the reporting True. from right through the years, I think every so often you'll see these reports of lights, orbs, whatever you want to call them, um, from you know, the early 1940s all the way through to the present. But also, you still get reports of what used to be called cigar-shaped objects. That's the thing you know, I remember from when I was growing up mm-hmm. reading UFO books. Now they're called Tic Tacs. But they're essentially the same kind of thing to a degree. And even in during World War II, I've got reports in the book of oblong-shaped objects. I mean, bear in mind, some of these were quite large. They were reported as 50 feet, 100 feet, 200 feet sometimes. But, you know, the, the actual dim- the dimensions might change, but the actual shape is still effectively a tic-tac. Although they're reported as Zeppelin, looking like Zeppelins back then. But a Zeppelin was a tic-tac, really, isn't it? So, you know, the things can change in magnitude in terms of dim- dimensions and maybe speeds but overall 
they still look fairly similar and you still can boil them down into a certain number of shapes. You know, you, you've seen those charts of UFOs where they have all the different shapes. And I bet that re- redacted report, when it co- when people get to see it, when it says about the different shapes, it'll boil it down into like half a dozen or a dozen different types. And they'll all be things that we're fairly familiar with. Maybe yeah. not the Cuban sphere, but, you know, other things will be fairly, fairly, you know, we'll, we'll, yeah, yeah, we know what those are. Ah, that damn Cuban sphere. That thing will mystify <laughs> me till the end of time. Ah, uh, for real. Um, well, you know, while we're on the subject, uh, Christopher Plain asked a pretty interesting question that I want to throw up there before we finally get to Calvine. Sorry to cover your mouth there, Chrissy. Um, okay. Graham, some have theorized that the Hestilin lights may be an artifact, um, you know, high power radio waves. Is there any indication that Foo Fighters may have also been atmospheric? Phenomena. Did that come across in any of your um, explanations for what the Foo Fighters could have been? It's been postulated post-war. When people have looked at it you know, in the last sort of 20, 20, 30 years, people have come up with that as an explanation, ball lightning being a, you know, another one. But in oh, terms yeah. of evidence, no, there's nothing like that, as far as I'm aware. Certainly not for the wartime stuff. I mean, bearing in mind that their um, kind of examination of the, of the phenomenon, we can get to this later if you like, was fairly sparse in terms of you know, trying to work out what the hell it was. They, they went down one particular road, which we can speak to later on, but that's all they, they, they looked at. And when that, what, that didn't appear to be the case, they, didn't, they couldn't go anywhere else because all avenues of exploration to them were meaningless. So, but I can talk about that later on. But no, you know, they haven't really looked at Earth lights as being any kind of um, explanation for this. But it could well be. You know, it's one of those things that, yeah, it's possible, but nobody's really been able to work it out and say, yeah, there you go. That's that's what it is. But equally, you can't rule it out. And I don't rule anything out. Mm-hmm. Uh, there are things I don't rule in because they're so preposterous that they're laughable. But that's, again, in the book. But, yes, that's one of the things. Yeah, could be, could be. Could be, yeah. Um, this is an interesting comment. Lord Ludacris says, my grandfather was a P-38 pilot and was also part of the Berlin airlift. He never saw a Foo Fighter, but I remember him saying the pilots did talk about them. That is really oh. interesting. And we hear that more and more. You know, that, um, you know, after they do leave the Air Force or the Navy, that a lot of these pilots uh, then go on to say, yeah, I did see that. Yes, I did see that. I had a pilot actually reach out to me um, last month that was um, over in the Persian Gulf and had a really fascinating UFO sighting. I'm hoping to get her, yes, her on the show hopefully soon to talk about that. Um, But yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, Anything else? on um those connections between then and now that you guys want to touch on before we move to calvine there's two in the book uh from 1943 so uh, you, you've got um, connections between 1943 and 2004 so there were two different fighter pilots one was over north africa um he was a new zealander 73 squadron and he wrote to the new zealand um like aviation minister after a, a particular famous sighting in 1955 saying look i saw this in 1943 a light that basically followed him sat on his wingtip over north africa um and he did you know he was trying everything he could to get this thing off his wingtip and it wouldn't move it just sat there uh, it got the point where he could actually turn the aircraft and there was a bit of a delay in it responding so he managed to get beh- uh, behind it at one stage and he was firing 20 millimeter cannon at it and the cannon shells were going into the light and nothing was happening so, you know, that's mm-hmm. one story. And then there's another story over um, southern Italy in, in December 1943 of a bow fighter crew, a night fighter crew 
again with a light and them going in a spiraling engagement, the two of them going round and round in circles upwards uh, to about 12,000 feet and this light just getting away from the bow fighter, which was actually quite a powerful aircraft um, and just disappearing. So there's all these kind of stories that, you know, that have in, these, involved these kind of Foo Fighter type lights. Even before the term was invented by the Americans, these things were still happening and affecting RF pilots long before the Foo Fighters became a thing. Hmm. Wow. Interesting. Last question on that, Graham, I promise, before we, we get to um, uh, what I really want to talk Tell about. <laughs> I know. I don't know why I, I don't know why I love, I love it so much, especially after some of the, the stuff you told me about it um, that we will get into. Um, did Graham, this is from Christopher Plain, did Graham find any accounts of um, pilots colliding with Foo Fighters or any like truly near misses? Anything like that? Great question. The, there's a story of the Balkans that something hit an aircraft, hit an RAF bomber um, over possibly Hungary or Romania, somewhere like that, in 1944. There are stories of 1943 of an American daylight raid over Stuttgart, where a shoal of little black discs fell from the uh, from the sky and hit, and one of them hit the wing of an aircraft and maybe caught fire. Um, but again, there's some sort of like confusion about that particular story. Um, that appeared in a, in a book in 1960. It's quite an old story. It's available on the internet. It's a well-known story uh, of, of that raid. Um, so yes, there are stories along those lines. And there are some others as well of near misses where things fell through bomber formations. There's a particular story from Italy in 1944 uh, of, of that as well. So yeah, there are, there are definitely stories. And of course, we don't know about the pilots who didn't come back. Right, right, yeah. I, oh, gosh, what are... What's the one that comes to mind to me is the Valentich case, obviously. Mm. Um, uh, the uh, the one in Michigan as well. Uh, the, uh, is that the, the the Felix Moncler case from 1953? Yes. Where, yeah. Yep. Very so unfortunate. Over, over case. Lake Superior. Yep. Yep. Very sad. Um, and it's very, happened. Very sad. We, we have to take that into account. Um, you know what happened, but yeah, fascinating. Hey guys, Ryan here. The Somewhere in the Skies podcast is a labor of love every week. And with that comes many different costs to keep the show running. That's where our Patreon campaign comes in. You give what you think the show is worth. There's different rewards available all the time, including shoutouts on the show, early editions of main episodes, bonus episodes and content, and very soon, monthly patron hangouts, where we sit back and chat all things UFOs. So I hope you'll consider becoming a Patreon subscriber today. To learn more and to join, visit patreon.com slash somewhere skies. Thank you for your support and keep looking up. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, 
all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Here we go. Um, go. And I know you, yeah, let's do it because I know you have limited time tonight. Um, what do you, are you familiar with the Calvine UFO incident? I'm only, yeah, I'm only fairly familiar with it. I know that they said that it can't be released until like, I think 2075, I believe. So <laughs> I know, yeah. yeah. Um, and I know that, yeah, the, there was two hikers that went hiking. I know the the story of it and then they took the photos and it's supposed to be one of the most amazing UFO photos. And I believe it's a diamond shaped and there's been renderings of it, but um, I, I don't know where we're at. There we go. I don't know where we're at. That's a rendering just to make sure yep. people don't think it's real. Yes. Uh, <laughs> let's, uh, let's give that precursor. This is not an actual right? UFO photo people. Okay. Yeah. So I just know that from the base of the story. And then I know that as of now, um, the conversation, but Graham, I'd love to know where your thoughts are and, and what your thoughts on this and, and what else you might know. That you okay. can talk to us about. Let's yeah. So, let's kind of, if you don't mind, Graham, start from the beginning, man, give <laughs> us like the skivvy on where this image came from, uh, this rendering. I know there's supposedly an actual photo, but yeah, if you don't mind, like Chrissy okay. said, like uh, Cliff Notes version of what this event is, who brought it to light. You know, I did just talk to Nick Pope on the show not too long ago. Mm. He was in New York, so I got to sit down with him face to face, and um, he's a controversial person. Mm. Um, so take what you will from him on this incident, but he is directly involved, apparently. So um, yeah, take it from there, man. I'm going to shut up. Yeah, well, Nick certainly like has an interest in the case because I believe he said he had a poster on his wall which you mm-hmm. know had the this you know that the, was taken from the photograph or one of the photographs, and then of course this representation was taken from it. There's actually a line drawing in the MOD archives which you can find online. Um, it, it is it does show the craft that you've got there. It, it's just like a kind of photocopy, if you like, of a line drawing that they use to try and. and do some analysis on the sizes, et cetera, of the, of the object. Um, so it's, it's like a very crude photocopy and it does show that kind of outline shape of the craft. And it does show an aircraft in roughly that kind of position, which is a Harrier. It, it's, you know, you can tell what type of aircraft it is. And actually in the original image, they suppose they reckon that they found evidence of a second aircraft as well, albeit someone that was much further away. It doesn't show up on the line drawing. Um, the course, the photograph itself has never been published. So, you know, nobody's actually actually officially seen it mm. um but that's all i'll say on that matter in, th- in terms of setting the scene so we're looking at the 4th of august 1990 so it's you know 32 mm-hmm. years ago uh and it's about nine o'clock at night and this is calvin it's a, a very it's a it's a very small place it's a it's a hamlet effectively it's sort of half a dozen houses a couple of farms um, just off the main highway from Perth to Inverness, which is in central Scotland. So you're going through the mountains, effectively, in Scotland, uh, in the Scottish Highlands. Um, 
so it's reasonably you know sparsely populated but not entirely uninhabited so there are people who live there but one night so you're nine o'clock at night in the middle of the summer so there's still light to be able to see and take photographs two people now chrissy called them hikers were on a hillside nearby they weren't hikers they were poachers hmm. so and the reason probably that they had the camera with them, and this is an extrapolation, this is not for certain, but I'm guessing that the reason why they had the camera was because they had a kill and they were wanting to take a picture of it. Because that was the only reason why they'd have a camera out there. Right, right. Okay, and that makes sense, all right? So it's one of these one in a million opportunities to take a picture of a UFO, what you know, people are called a UFO. You were in the right place at the right time with the right equipment. It wasn't planned or anything like that. It just happened to be, you know, happenstance. So these two guys took this picture, or they took six pictures, rather, apparently. And this is one of them, you know, the representation of it, of this diamond-shaped craft with this little kind of empennage at the, at the one end of it. And one, at least one Harrier. Now, they said the Harrier was flying around, you know, in, in the area. Uh, and, of course, when the analysis of the, of the image came up, much later, the, the, the guys at the Ministry of Defence actually realised that there was another aircraft in the image, but that wasn't apparent straight away. Now, this thing, this diamond-shaped craft, was hovering, and it hovered there, they said, when they reported the incident, um, for about 10 minutes, 15 minutes or so. Um, I, I can't remember the exact time scale, but it was, it was a fair amount of time. And then it shot upwards out of sight. The aircraft was certainly the reason. Now, it's not clear whether the aircraft were escorting it, or whether they just happen to be in the same vicinity. You know, one again, one of those million to one shots. Mm -hmm. It's not entirely clear. Now, the two guys actually took the story to the Daily Record, which is one of the main sort of, you know, Scottish newspapers. Um, and when they got the pictures, they didn't know what to do with them. Because I think the, if I remember rightly, the picture editor, et cetera, the other people who like, would, deal with it, you know, stuff like this coming into the paper. He was on holiday. So there was a relief staff who were on. And rather than take the information and publish the story, which would have been the best thing all around, and publish the picture, they they asked the MOD for comment before the, the story was run. And, of course, the MOD, the Ministry of Defence, said, well, can we have a look at them? And they went, yeah. And they passed all the information to them. Just give the MOD the information. So, so mistake one right so <laughs> the record didn't have any of the details anymore they passed everything to didn't, i don't, don't even believe the two copies they just passed everything to the mod um now you can look in the mod uh, release of files from back then from about you know this this time period or shortly afterwards rather about september time 1990 um they're available you know you can see them on the internet and they do see the kind of backwards and forwards of you know the the documents to do with this case. So there is this line drawing because they passed it to a branch called DI fifty five, which is effectively the investigation uh, arm of the Ministry of Defence in terms of UFOs. Now you know, see Nick Pope says that he well did he, does he say that he led like the UFO program or he's you know he was the major player in it. I don't necessarily think that's quite the case. He was certainly there to take phone calls and and maybe dick, you know, sort of work on policy and things like that. But he worked in an office. He never went, as far as I'm aware, and I'm not trying to denigrate uh, you know Nick Pope here at all. But he never went into the field and did you know on the spot investigations. And in terms of technical analysis, 
this other branch did that kind of stuff because there are documents to show that they actually did a you know some kind of analysis on this draw they, they came up with this drawing to try and work out what the size of it was compared with a harrier um to see whether it was any kind of thing that they knew about or what they would do anyway for an unknown craft, see what size it was, see what dimensions was, all that, yada, yada, yada. Um, but that wasn't Nick Pope. He didn't do that. There was, this other, there was this other branch that did it. So you can see that information. You can see also there's some information around that line drawing that they asked for Squadron, because that's, that's for Squadron operations is mentioned in the specific document. Four Squadron was actually a unit that flew the Harrier back in 1990, along with one squadron and three squadron. I've looked through their operational records uh, for that particular month. There's no mention of this craft whatsoever. Surprise, surprise. Mm. Um, But when you look at some other information, they realized, or the MOD realized, and this is not Nick Pope, because I don't think he was working for them at that time. I might be wrong about that, but I'm pretty sure he wasn't in in post at the time this happened. I think that might have been afterwards. Um, He, uh, sorry, whoever was dealing with the case at the time, I believe he was someone called Owen Hartop. I might be wrong about that as well. Um, but whoever actually was dealing with it for the MOD, they had a, a list of kind of things that they would talk to journalists about because there's a document in the in the files about that as well that says, you know, lines to take. It actually says that. So they've got four or five lines about um, what they should say about this incident. And then also there's a bit underneath where it says, if pressed. So that means if the journalists didn't take you know, no for an answer and went further, this is something else they would say. So you've got all that kind of thing. You know, it's um, it's quite weird to see this kind of it's a it's effectively like a PR exercise for them to yep. come out with all this stuff in advance and saying, you know, this is what we're going to tell you when you ask about it. And if you probe a little bit deeper, we're going to say this if we're pushed. So that's that's the kind of questioning. So that's the information that's in the archives. Now, the the, the witnesses never came forward ever, mm-hmm. but there's a reason for that, and that's probably down to the fact that they were you know poaching. And they may have been known in the area. The police might have been involved at some stage. Chances are they just didn't want the publicity. You know, they might have thought it was a good idea to go to a newspaper with a story. I'm presupposing here, of course, to get some money for a story, you know, because tabloids pay for stories in the UK. Um, They might have thought they were on a quick book, but it it might have backfired on them. With all the press attention that, that, you know, came after this, they probably just want to keep quiet because a few too many questions might have found out why they were actually there for rather than right. just being too high. And that's but essentially they're living. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they don't want to risk that. I every it. time you see this story, it's two hikers. They weren't hikers. Mm-hmm. They were poachers. So there, there's, there's, your, there's your bit straight away. Now, in terms of the locking away the records, Chrissy said 2075. It's actually 2076 they've been locked to. So, Damn it, Chrissy. Sorry. I'm a year uh, off. One year. <laughs> How dare one you. Year. One I'm, year. I'm hopeful that it's going to come out a year before. <laughs> <laughs> Always the, she's the optimist on some. It's not a biggie. Don't just worry. one year. Yeah, it's yeah. not a biggie. Don't worry. Um, so it's a long time. And the reason mm-hmm. why they're doing it till effectively the witnesses are dead and anybody who's gotten interested in it now is dead is because of GDPR, which is the data protection regulations in this country. Um, It'll be, chances are, because it's names and addresses or the name and address of the witness who made the statement. Um, it'll be that information that's being kept under wraps because now 
um, you know, that kind of information is considered, um, you know, really secret. You can't divulge it under, uh, under very specific circumstances. And this isn't one of them. Uh, it's not considered to be under the national interest sort of thing. So it can't be released that way. Uh, there's a whole load of you know, reasons why it's kept under wraps. I used to work for our national health service in the UK. You know, there was stuff that we couldn't divulge to people unless under specific circumstances. So yeah, I'm sure there's you know, similar uh, laws regarding data operating in the United States and in other countries around the world for people who are listening to this. So you know, there's reasons why that happens. It's a mundane explanation. I know people are thinking, oh, well, it's the photographs which are being kept under wraps. No. The photographs are probably you know, in circulation somewhere. People will have, you know, some people have seen them over the years, um, that much I know. But in terms of them coming to light, There'll be reasons why you know they haven't been officially released, but I guess in terms of a legal reason why you'd keep something under wraps until 2076, it's because of the names and addresses. That's the only reason, unless there's some gigantic cover-up. But I'm pretty sure it's more just the it's the fact that it's it's just the names and addresses. So unfortunately, 32 years later, that's where we are with this case. Now, in terms of what it was. Which is a $64,000 question. question. I was just going to ask that too. <laughs> <laughs> don't, don't, don't break my heart here, Graham. I'm warning da, you. Da, da. <laughs> Chances are it's not a UFO. In terms of UFO, because it's unidentified, because nobody really knows what it is at the moment. Yeah, okay. But it is probably some kind of secret US tech. The Harriers were probably mm. escorting it. So you know, people who are building their hopes up in terms of this being some wonderful, the best ever UFO case in Britain, mm, probably not. There's been, you know, there's some information out there to that's already out there in depending on where you look that suggests that the UK got in touch with the Pentagon straight afterwards to find out what was going on. And the Pentagon got in touch with the Britain to find out what was going on. And there might have been a bit of kind of argy bargy in terms of who was to blame. And maybe are you operating secret craft, you know, over our space or, or have you Brits got something that you're not telling us about this kind of stuff going on? Um, so I think there's a, you know, there's a little bit of kind of sort of secret kind of stuff going where if the Americans were testing something over UK airspace and they weren't telling us, that would be a big, big problem. You know, and if that was found out, then, oh, yeah, there'd be hell to pay. It might have caused a bit of a kind of a bit of a stink to, you know, against yeah. the respective militaries. But it's all been smoothed out since then. But that craft's not, but we're talking before about craft not being unveiled after a certain period of time. Nobody's come forward from the Americans to say, we've got this technology. But there could be reasons why they're not doing that for. Um, but in terms of you know, a more otherworldly explanation, I don't think so. Not in this particular case. It seems with everything that's got around it and this talk about this kind of interplay between the Pentagon and the, and the, US, and the MOD and some other things that there's probably a, a more rational explanation behind it. Uh, it's just that the fact that they're unwilling to actually divulge the technology that they've got in this particular platform. And bearing in mind that two years later off the West Coast of America, there were reports of this thing that using a call sign called gas pipe, which was coming in from high altitude and flying into landings, you know, hundreds of miles away. And it was dropping down like a stone, 5,000 feet a minute kind of thing. And it was coming in from 80,000 feet, but it had a radio call sign. And then this thing that crashed at Boscombe Down in 1994 on the runway because its nose wheel collapsed or something, which may or may not be an AV6, Aerial Vehicle 6, the Astra prototype, which again is a, semi a very, very secret Lockheed platform. 
who knows what the Americans at that time were experimenting with and maybe still are, or maybe have, you know, tried, maybe it failed for some reason and they've shelved it and they've moved on to something even better. You know, there's reasons why they might keep the stuff under wraps. And of course, at the moment, all this stuff going on in Ukraine is the last thing they're going to do at the moment is tell people what they've got, because, you know, why yeah. would you in situations like this? Absolutely. Yeah, well, you know what the, this, this kind of reminds me of too is, um, and this kind of relates to a question Christopher Plain asked, um, is it commonplace for US DOD to test tech in the UK? Um, I just want to piggyback off of that by saying, you know, during the Rendlesham Forest incident, whatever that craft was that landed in the forest and shot beams down into the, you know, the weapon storage areas, um, the UK was not aware that the US was housing nuclear ordnance at the base at the time. This was a secret we had that we put those weapons there. You know, I'm sure they had inklings that, yeah, of course, it's the Cold War. We got to have some sort of nuclear protection, but they had a ton of nuclear ordnance that they had somehow snuck into the, um, you know, the storage areas there. And of course, those were the areas where this UFO supposedly was seen hovering over. And that seems to be a big reason why the Rendlesham Forest case is such a big deal. And there was yeah. such a big cover up is not so much even the UFO per se. It was the fact that we were against treaty at the time, the U S of having these weapons there. So um, I guess piggybacking off of that, Graham, why would the U S be testing something over in the UK during this time? I mean, we have such a good relationship with you guys there when it comes to military and, and, and intelligence with the five eyes and everything. Why would we be doing that? Is it because Calvine is such a remote area and we're, we wanted to test it out there? We got millions of remote areas in the US we could have That's been it. doing this with. It's not really remote. That's the thing. You know, it, it on okay. its own, Calvine is semi remote, but in terms of Britain, but actually it's, you know, there's nowhere in Britain which is really remote. Um, in terms of airspace and in terms of population, there are people who live all over the place. So people would see it. If it flew over, they might not report it, but they certainly see them. But they might mistake it for something else. Who knows? The Americans have certainly tested secret technology in Britain. I mean, the stories of um, the F-117 flying into into bases in Scotland uh, during the 1980s before it was unveiled to the public. The stories of the B-2 being flown over over uh, UK airspace before it was it was unveiled as well. So no doubt other things will have been used in UK airspace with or without our knowledge. UK have tested things out of a place called Wharton, which is in Lancashire. It's a British air, or used to be a British aerospace, now BA Systems uh, base, where they've tested various craft over the years, some unmanned, some are not, you know, some some um, not unmanned. So, yeah, things happen. Now, whether the question is whether or not, you know, prior notice was given, who knows? Was yeah. the notice given somewhere, but it got forgotten about, or was it, did it go at the wrong place, or did the person who got it, or the department who got it, not tell anybody else? You know, you just don't know, because all these kind of machinations never make, you know, never see the light of day, do they? So we may never get to know that part of the story. But it seems that there was some kind of battles and forwards about, is this yours? No, is this yours kind of thing? Um, neither side seemed to know, or whoever was doing the questioning seemed to know whose it was. Now, maybe the right, the wrong people were asking the questions to the wrong people as well. So, you know, it's one of those minefields. All we know is that a craft was seen. We know the rough dimensions and shape of it. And we know that there were aircraft involved with it. But beyond that, we know very little. 
Um, now, the only people who are going to be able to tell that if it is a, a US craft are the Americans when they come clean about it. But if it turns out that's not the case, then you know, all bets are off and it could be, it could be something otherworldly. But I think at the time there were all these other things being seen, um, both across your side of the pond and ours that lead men, you know, people and other people like me to suspect that this was probably something that the Americans just don't want to divulge at this mm-hmm. particular time. Graham, what was the Graham, size yeah. again? Can you, um, did we like dimensions? Cause I read that it was like a hundred feet, but the reason why I asked that is because I'm curious mm. to see what's in the data bank. Then if we look at like this actually being us tech, then mm. the question is around 90, you know, the nineties up to 97. Um, we look at all different types of crafts and shapes that we've seen in the States. If, if this is American tech, then why aren't some of those then as well within the same time frame? Yeah, the, there's no there's no hard and fast estimate on how big it is. Again, it's one of these things of you don't know what it is, you don't know how far away it is. And therefore, because you don't know how far away it is, you don't know how big it is. And that's something that's plagued UFO reporting since the 1940s. Mm-hmm. Because, you know, if you've got a light or you've got a craft or a disc, but you don't know how big the disc is, it could be 10 feet away and be a meter across, uh, you know, I'm mixing my measurements up there, but you know what I mean. Or it could be a mile away and it could be enormous or it could be 10 miles away and even bigger. So until you know what something is, but if you, if you were looking at an F-15, you would know roughly what the dimensions of an F-15 are. Therefore, exactly. wherever you see it, you know how far away it is. But with something that you don't know what it is, it's almost impossible to try and work it out unless it's interacting with something. So unless you can see it directly over a bridge or in front of a mountain where you know what the distance is, whereas in this particular case, it was in midair. Now, it may have been close enough that you get some sense of how big it is. And I think that's where the measurements come from. But in terms of being able to accurately say, look, it was 100 foot long or it was 50 feet long, I think that's still to be decided. That's fair, man. Yeah. Um, Chrissy's reconnecting at the moment. I hope she caught the end of your answer there. Um, There you are. I love technology. It just keeps <laughs> you. I cannot hear you, but I didn't hear the last part of that. But- Chris, uh, Chris Plain says, was the Calvin incident more or less right after the Belgian wave? It was actually yeah. in the middle of it. Right. Okay. It was 89 to 91-ish, um, the Belgian wave. And so it was slap bang in the middle of it. And chances are, whatever was in the Belgian wave may have been the same thing or may I have mean, been something similar. Right, man. And I'm, you know, even looking at the rendering Again, I'll pull it up. Mm-hmm. You know, that's pretty, even if it's just a rendering, if this is based on an actual photo, that is pretty damn low to the ground. Very. Um, so you do have to wonder during Belgian wave, um, this is early nineties. Uh, are we dealing with stealth technology, you know, low and quiet? That's what this thing screams to me. Um, it was very low and it was possibly very quiet. Um, Stealth blimp technology, maybe even. I don't know. I don't know. But I do find uh, Chris's question interesting. Don't get me wrong. I'm not suggesting for a minute it's definitely U.S. tech because I'm not aware of anything they've got which you know, can do the things that thing was reported to do. You know, hover in place for how many minutes and then shoot straight upwards. Um, right. Yeah, I think you but, said like ten minutes or something. Yeah. yeah. But at the same time, I can't rule it out either because right. we don't know what the capabilities are. It's one of those things where we're just in the dark with it. You know, it could be either. It could be something else entirely as well. So you know, who knows? But I think bear in mind the time and some of the things that were seen at the time, you know, I'm leaning towards it being something more mundane and something um, explainable in terms of US technology. But I might be wrong. 
on that. You know, I, I'm, I've been wrong before on other things, so I could be wrong on this. <laughs> How dare you? How dare you? <laughs> well, um, kind of closing this part of it then, guys, um, what does Graham think about the prospect of the Phoenix Lights having been a huge V-shaped U.S.-made dirigible? Mm-hmm. I mean, I've been doing a lot of digging lately into Phoenix Lights, which hopefully will make it to your television screen soon. Um, I'll have more news on that. But, um, yeah, what do you think, Graham? Um, Phoenix Lights, what are your thoughts on that incident? Again, it's one of those things that it's it's possible, and I'm not sure how remotely possible it is, but just seeing that thing and how immense it was, it's supposed to have been, how, how large it was, and the, it was a V, wasn't it? It wasn't a triangle, if I'm right. If I'm right. Mm-hmm. So that seems unbelievable in terms of being able to construct something like that that can fly. And why would you have a dirigible which is L-shaped or V-shaped, it doesn't make much sense. Fair enough. Yep. To me, anyway. I mean, I don't know about other people. I might be completely wrong again. But it just seems that it's a very strange shape uh, of a platform to have. But who knows? Somebody might have come up with, yeah, this is the best configuration for something that needs to do this job. And here we are. But, yeah, it could be something else completely different. Exactly. Yeah, and, and we got to keep in mind there were supposedly two different events that night. So which yeah. could have been the dirigible and which couldn't have or vice versa. Who truly knows um, what we're dealing with? Sorry, Chrissy, please. No, I was just no, I was just going to say, I'm like, well, isn't there a conversation, too, of a, of a craft that was supposed to be a tech? You know, we're saying the Phoenix Lights was obviously anomalous, but there was a supposedly American tech that did have a shape similar, I think, around the same time or a little bit before that they said that they were testing and that was classified at one point in time. I forget the 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 craft name though but again we don't know that's why i was wondering about size and shape because the the first thing that popped into my mind was the phoenix lights too yeah interesting yep yeah. connections to be made always oh, yeah. um i've got one question here from twitter and then one starred um to kind of wrap things up guys if if that's okay with you let me go back to the live chat I'll just um, I'll just answer Chris's last question if I can, yeah, please. I see. He <laughs> says, "Yeah, um, because the U.S. Marine Corps operated Harry's back then, the AV-8." Okay. Interesting. Yeah, you know that reminds me too of like you know the Tehran UFO incident. The reason the U.S. was so interested in that event is because we were leasing our planes to Iran, so they wanted to know what the hell is this thing that like jammed our radars and our communications. And- right. Boom. Boom. Thank you. Thank you, Graham. I'm glad you said it. <laughs> uh, Russia is kind of a hot, hot button issue right now, oh, yeah. but we could talk about that on a separate occasion. Let's okay. go to our, um, our starred question here to wrap things up. I like this one. Eve asks, what does Graham think about the prospect? Oh, nope. That wasn't the one. I apologize. Um, we already answered that. Uh, Christopher playing Graham. Are there records of Nazi or Japanese fighter pilots encountering Foo Fighters or were they all um, from Western aviators? Anything okay. in your research touch on that? Fair enough. So if, um, if I had a pound for every time somebody said the Germans saw them too, I'd be rich. <laughs> However, I thought that too. I, was I wrong? Well, you're right and you're wrong. Okay. So effectively, when you look through the records, you can't find records in terms of what you can find out from the Americans and the British point of view. So there's not really squadron records or pilot testimony. There are a few isolated cases, but they, they lack in detail and they lack context. So they're very sparse in terms of numbers, but even sparser in terms of detail when you do find them. So I do have some of these in the book in terms of German pilots and, and cases from uh, German civilians on the ground seeing things during World War II. But the chapter is very brief because there simply aren't the cases. Now, 
you have to remember that after the war, the 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 war itself wasn't a you know a topic that the Germans wanted to discuss much, if ever. Mm-hmm. And also, UFO um, ufology has been a bit of a minefield in Germany over the years. There are German researchers, but it's not something that's been taken entirely entirely ser- uh, seriously across there. And from what I'm aware, and I've asked this question of various people, and I haven't had much response is that I don't see the German researchers trying to go through German records in the same way I went through British and, and, and uh, American ones to dig out the information from their own Luftwaffe records. Now, you have to remember that a lot of these records were, were destroyed at the end of the war by the Germans before the, the final mm-hmm. surrender. So there are complete years which are missing. But they must have records, and they certainly do have records of losses and, and operations, where anything like this probably would have been recorded. Now, I don't know what level they have, and I've seen some of it, but I'm not fluent enough in German to be able to understand it. So, you know, the answer to that is I haven't come across it. Not many other people, as far as I'm aware, you know, have have more than a handful of reports. And what I could find have gone in there. Uh, you can see a newspaper that's sitting behind me over my shoulder there. That's actually a German UFO newsletter from the 1970s. And it has a case in there. That's why I obtained that. That's the kind of level I had to go to to find some of these cases. It was oh, going wow. to some really obscure places um, to get the stories. But they can't be necessarily verified because I can't corroborate them. So I had to put it like a caveat in the book saying, look, you know, some of these things are fairly vague. Um, they're not the same level as the RF or the uh, US Army Air Force kind of reporting. Um, but yeah, as far as the Japanese go, it's exactly the same story. You know, the, the stories of, um, and there's photographs which may or may not be true, which are probably fakes, uh, showing Japanese aircraft in fairly close proximity to things which are being called Foo Fighters, which are probably blobs on the film in terms of photographic defects. Um, but there's plenty of stories of American involvement with balls of fire, because that's what they called them out in the Pacific. Um, that happened that but that's not something i cover in the book because the book's just about european side of things uh i will in the future hopefully write something about the pacific side because that's interesting as well it is yeah Mm -hmm. no i'm so happy you wrote the book i mean we we see this phenomenon through such western eyes here in the united states that it's so refreshing for a book like yours um to cover other areas and time periods of when these things have happened. So we get the fuller picture. Yeah. Um, and I didn't know that. So I'm glad you told me that. Um, you know, Christopher Plain said, maybe it's the same people who deleted Elizondo's emails. <laughs> <laughs> the thing is about the yes. Foo Fighters, everybody thought the Foo Fighters, you know, up until about the mid 1990s thought it was just these like half a dozen cases uh, that appeared in Joe Chamberlain's 1945 um, American Legion magazine article. And they'd been culled from the 415th Night Fighter Squadron in Eastern France. So, you know, that's why the UFO books didn't cover it in the in the 50s, 60s, 70s, and 80s to any great degree, because the information simply wasn't there. And for whatever reason, maybe it just be a lack of resources, lack of time, a lack of enthusiasm, people didn't contact the pilots beyond these few cases and say, look, have you seen anything? You know, there wasn't that much information coming into the into the newsletters and into into UFO books. There just seemed to be the appetite. Everybody thought, oh, yeah, it started with Kenneth Arnold. But actually, when you look at the information, there's a lot more. People have dug into the into the Foo Fight art, um, you know, things since the, 19, the mid-1990s. People like Jean Alaric from Project 1947, from Jeff Linsell, he, he interviewed a lot of pilots before they died in the late 90s, early 2000s. Uh, Keith Chester wrote a book in 2007 called Strange Company, which I read and I enjoyed. It had a few errors in it, which I've corrected through this book. But ultimately, it's still, it's still a good read. Um, the book I wrote, which, plug, plug, 
there. Yes, please. Uh, UFOs, uh, UFOs before Roswell. I dug a, um, a couple of hundred cases out of the RF records, which have never been in print before, which never been known. And these happened over the Balkans in 1944. So it expands the area. Um, there's cases in, in the book from before 1944 where the Americans coined the term in November 1944 about the Foo Fighters. But actually, those things were happening much earlier, as early as 1942. Um, the, the, the picture on the front of the book is a case where uh, the crew of a Wellington bomber fired at a light and nothing happened. You know, so all this kind of stuff was happening. Um, the same kind of things that the Americans were seeing later on the war, uh, where the Foo Fighter name comes from, seen much earlier, been seen over France. Germany, but they've also been seen in the Balkans, they've been seen over northern Italy, people were seeing them over Scandinavia, um, over the Russian front, over the Bay of Biscay. So, yeah, you know, you name it, over Europe, they were seeing them. Wow. Awesome. And yeah, our most recent episode of Somewhere in the Skies covers UFOs in Scandinavia for mm-hmm. anyone who um, hasn't heard it. We have a brilliant section um, narrated by Fred, Fred Anderson. Um, over in, I believe he is in Sweden. Um, so please check that out in the archives. Please check out Graham's book. But we have one last question that I want to ask of both of you, if that's okay. Is that all right, Chrissy? I know you yeah, got to yeah, get shoot. going. No, shoot, okay, shoot, cool. Shoot um, I'll ask, um, I'll ask Graham first. This comes from Twitter. Uh, TP on Twitter asks, if you could have witnessed any UFO encounter in history, which would you choose, Graham? What's the one you would have been doing, like to have been a part of? I think everybody would say Roswell because it's just so kind of <laughs> out there in terms of all the you know all the bits and pieces that are associated with it, all the people who come forward and turned out to be you know hoaxes, and then all the other information that's whether that sort of suggests that there's something going on. But actually, that's not the one I'm, I'm going to mention. The one I'm going to mention is the Thomas Mantell incident um, from, from 1948, uh, the one where he was supposedly chased Venus to his death. You know, the, the one where he, he's, he's alleged to have ran out of oxygen by chasing this object uh, that his, his squadron mates turned back because that they couldn't fly so high. And he just kept on going, he flew to 20,000 feet and maybe more in search, in chasing an object. And then died. these aircraft crashed and he died. I would love to know, not necessarily being the aircraft and me die, but I'd like to know what he was chasing. You know, I'd like to be there on the spot and see what the controllers could see from the tower at Godden Field, that they could see themselves, what the people in the towns nearby who had seen this object at different points of the day were, were seeing for themselves as well. Um, and, and what the astronomer who was down in Nashville that saw this object fly over that he reported as a balloon, what, what they saw as well. So the, there's all these different elements to this story, which was an amazing story. Um, but unfortunately, you know, ended with the death of the pilot. So that'd be one that I would look at and think I would like to have been a fly in the wall there and mm-hmm. seeing what actually went on. Yeah. I love it. I love it. Yeah. And um, I do want to mention, thank you, Disclosure Team Vinny, for the super sticker. He is in Loch Ness right now, visiting us, um, taking a little break to come say hi to us. So hey, Vinny. hi, Vinny. Hi, Dan. I know you guys hey, are doing some Dan. awesome work hey. out there. So um, thanks, guys. Thanks for hopping in and saying hello. We certainly appreciate it. Uh, Chrissy, same question. Which UFO event would you like to have witnessed in history? Perspective is, I think, is the uh, any pilot perspective I would love to see. But I have, I have two. I'm like for sure, like everyone's gonna laugh. But Phoenix Lights to me, I love motherships. (laughs) (laughs) Um, 
I just find them fascinating. So I would have loved to be underneath that looking up. I remember the perspective and I, I think the perspective of, I was a mother and a daughter driving on the highway before the, the craft went into Phoenix and they were, they were driving underneath it and they were looking up and they could, they were so close that they could see them it being like metallic. Um, so I, I think for that, but my favorite story that has a UFO attachment to it is the aerial school event. The aerial oh, school right. incident to me is, I just, those children, you know, a mass sighting with a UFO, with an, a, a, an experience as well, um, and contact experience. I think to me, that is unbelievable. Uh, I would like to hear more stories coming out of Africa and different countries there. We don't hear enough of them. And I think that at some point we will, um, you know, I know Randall Nickerson is working on that now in his movie that's coming out shortly. So I'm, yeah, I, I think aerial school for sure is one of my favorites. It's just, it's such an, an, an amazing story with a group of children. So I, I would have to agree with you. I think that would be the one I would like to have been involved with as well. Um, mainly because there were enough other people there that I wouldn't be as scared. I, I think I would want to be part of a mass UFO sighting rather than some mothership experience by myself. Um, my, my rather dramatic UFO sighting with my father was was enough for me in one lifetime um so i'm okay not having a ufo setting ever again but if i were to i think it would be aerial school like you said just so many credible witnesses involved some of which mm -hmm. i've interviewed here on the show who some 30 plus years later uh, still stick to the story as it was that very day and how much the event impacted their lives and and change their lives again that's what i'm about here at somewhere in the skies is how these events change people and um you know the, the aftermath of an event like how do you go on after that after having your entire world turned upside down and and whatnot it's crazy it's absolutely yeah. crazy so that's a good choice that's a good choice well graham before we let you go man um and thank you so much for your time we kept you a little over what i promised um Tell us a little, if you can, about uh, the new project you are working on and um, when can we expect it? I know that's a hard question to, to answer and uh, authors hate getting that question, but when are we getting the new damn book? <laughs> well, you should ask uh, Dan and Olaf that question because they're finishing off the artwork for, for it as I speak. Really? Okay. So when that's done, it's out. Perfect. Okay. <laughs> We're like, get on it, Dan. <laughs> yeah. Pressure's <laughs> on you guys. Hey, guys. Gramps, yeah. You've heard it now. We know. We're it's waiting right. on I, you. I know. <laughs> I, I'm, I don't pressure people. I, I, I always said, look, you know, um, I said to the person who's written the forward, um, you know, you can get it to me when, when you can. And actually, they, they've provided that. So that's that out of the way. And the last thing is the artwork. But obviously, Dan's been busy with his Columbia project. And he's now just been up to Bolskin House up near uh, Loch Ness for Alistair Crowley, uh, doing a documentary with Vinny and some other people regarding that. So, you know, that that's taking his time as well. So I understand why it's taking a little bit longer. Uh, but they've assured me that they'll have it, you know, to me shortly. So that's, that's wonderful. Uh, and as soon as I get it, it'll be out. Um, it's not on the Foo Fighters. That's all I'm about I was to just say. Because yeah, I don't want to be called Mr. Foo Fighter. Right. <laughs> I, don't want to be, I don't want to be typecast. So it's it's got an aviation element to it. That's all I'll say. But it's definitely more kind of in the style of the Foo Fighter book in terms of how much depth I go into and the kind of you know resourcing of information that can back up what I'm saying. Because I've 
I remember books I used to read in the in the seventh in the late seventies and early eighties when I was growing up, when I was first into the UFO hobby, and a lot of it didn't have any you know attribution whatsoever. So it was a case of, well, how do I know what the hell have you got this information from? It's almost like you could have just made this up, you know. And I hated that kind of thing, and I vowed that if I ever which I never thought I would, but if I ever wrote a book myself, I would make sure that it was kind of, you know, sort of footnoted to the nth degree so that people couldn't turn around five years later and say, Graham, I think you've just made that up. You know, so, <laughs> so that's how That's why your first book is about uh, 30 pounds, I think. Yeah, no, yeah. It's a weapon. It's a weapon. <laughs> oh, yeah. It's, uh, it's, it's thick. You know, it can do some damage with that. Um, yeah. Yeah. For sure. Oh, man, I can't wait. I can't wait for that. Um, again, pressure's on Dan and Olaf. Get working. Um, but other <laughs> than that, where can we find everything you're up to? Well, just contact me on, on Twitter. It's the best way because that's where I announce everything nowadays. I'll, I live on Twitter, apparently. So it's at Border750. Um, that's how you can get in touch with me. So uh, and the last uh, I joined UAP Media UK 12 months ago. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's been a bit of a roller coaster ride since then. Uh, before that, you know, I was just somebody sort of shouting into the wilderness and I was putting a few things out there, but not really getting anywhere. And since I joined that, it's just been a kind of wow, you know, kind of ride. Um, I keep getting imposter syndrome. I really do. I keep thinking, <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm, I'm one of these days people are going to find me out, <laughs> you know, sort of thing. <laughs> and you and me I'm some kind of fraud. Uh, I, I generally have a kind of less kind of like fear of sometimes of people thinking, you don't know what you're talking about, Graham. Um, so every time I release something, every time I post something, it's all, what's the reaction going to be? Yeah, I'm, I'm also a bit, well, I'm, I'm, I'm really kind of this little coward in this kind of extrovert in, in, uh, exterior. So, but I'm, I'm grateful to everybody who's, who's supported me, everybody who's had, made time for me, everybody like yourself who's invited me on, on their podcast and discussed the book and who's bought it and who's shared it and who's appreciated it. Um, so, you know, thank you to everybody. It's, it's wonderful and it just inspires me to do more and more information and to support people like you for the work that you two do as well so yeah it's it's wonderful it's a great community of this and i'm so pleased i'm a little bit part a little bit part of it i think you're more you're, than a little bit part of it That's i a was big just part. gonna say authors are are such a major part such a major no. part Graham, we are beyond honored to have you in this field and you are essential and you're doing amazing work. So we have to thank you for coming on somewhere in the skies and uh, for, for dedicating your time to this topic that Christy and I both feel could truly change the world if we ever fully understood it, which we might never, but um, I think the journey is rewarding enough and you are you are a big part of that so thank Thank you you. for joining us on somewhere in the skies and um and we will talk soon man for sure thanks guys awesome take care bye bye wow chrissy we'll have just a quick debrief here um that was amazing again we didn't really plan a ton with graham because we knew once we got him on like he would just have a wealth of information. So um, I got to thank you for also taking the time today. I know it's oh a God, it's little fun. impromptu. Um, Andy, again, is under the weather for those tuning in. Andy from that UFO podcast was going to be joining us, but um, he's Next not time. feeling too good. So we are sending him our absolute best. Uh, he's a busy, busy dad, and it doesn't surprise me that his immune system finally shut down. So Andy sending you our best, my man. But Chrissy, before we yes. go. Yes. Um, what are you up to? Any any news you can share with us about stuff you're doing? Um, Do you, and where can we find everything? 
Yeah, for sure. Interviews that I'm, yeah, I'm like working, I should be releasing a new interview next week. So I'm working on that. If it still goes, I won't say fully what it will be about just booking, booking for us, booking for you and just excited and working on stuff with the debrief. Lots of fun stories. I think I'll just say people hopefully take a, just keep watching for the next little bit. I think we'll have some great UFO stories that will be coming out and just information, tech, defense. Tim is doing an amazing job covering the war right now. So uh, if you're interested in that, come please just go to the debrief.org and, and follow us. And and obviously Christopher Plain's still here. Hey, Chris, he always does amazing work too and have some good stuff coming out soon as well. So absolutely. Yeah. And yeah. Um, you were amazing in um, getting us another interview with Avi Loeb, who will be interviewing yes. very soon. Um, so guys, if you want, um, we still are open to listener questions for, for Avi. Um, we got a ton, so hopefully we'll get to some of them, but um, yeah, feel free to reach out to me or Chrissy and um, throw us your questions for Avi Loeb. We'll be talking about Galileo. Um, we'll be talking about some recent articles he's done over at the debrief and, um, and everything in between, you know, the latest findings from uh, what, what is it? The um, Hubble H- and Hubble. also yeah. what's James the other Webb, one? James Webb Thank telescope. <laughs> totally <laughs> black. <Yeah>. <laughs> it's, it's, there's so many of them now. Ugh, but yeah. I even know. Avi Loeb did a, a, a lip lecture recently and did, did some updates. I watched that. So we'll talk to him about updates on the Galileo project, but he spoke there in the lecture. So I'm excited for that. I love Avi and I love his work. So I'm excited to He's see great. what's, yeah, what he has planned in the next little bit that's coming out. So. It's exciting. Awesome. Yeah. All right, Chrissy. Well, I know you are a busy person. You've got some meetings to get to. Um, so I'm going to talk shop a little bit with the folks here, but I want to thank you again for hopping on today and Always all fun. your insights on all this. So um, we will definitely talk soon, probably within the next good. couple hours. <laughs> See you in a little bit. Okay. Bye guys. Take care. My special thanks to Graham and to Chrissy for joining us today. This is so much fun. Um, we went almost 40 minutes over what I promised these two, so I have to thank them for their time. I want to thank all of you for sticking with us and watching. I want to thank everyone who gave the super stickers and super chats. Really appreciate it. Really, really appreciate it. Hello to Dave Altman. I'm sorry I didn't see your message there, man. Um, we got Dan Zetterstrom here. Hit the like. Eve says, yes, please um, share the video, like the video, subscribe to the channel. If you are not already, we would certainly appreciate that. Thanks as, to Christopher Plain, BB, Jesse. Um, I know Jay Faye is here. Everybody, everybody. Thank you. John as well. Bim Jim, Robert Chaffee. Thank you, guys. I really appreciate all of your support as usual. Um, the last thing I want to share with you guys. Hello, Jesse as well. Um, is some conferences I have coming up. Live conferences are back, and I am so excited to be finally getting out there and um, giving some new lectures that I've been working on recently. So the first one I have is going to be coming to you in um, August, and that is the inaugural Strange Tales Midwest Conference on the Unknown, which is going to be in Cape Girardeau, Missouri, where a very famous UFO crash landing occurred. So definitely, um, I'm going to touch on that in my talk and, um, and everything in between. And I do have to thank Michael Huntington, who's really at the forefront of this conference, putting it together, finding the speakers, um, incredible list of speakers coming to you guys, including Micah Hanks and Michael as well, and a bunch of others as well. So that's going to be coming to you August 5th through the 7th. Um, you can learn more at, I believe it is, um, let me get this right, Cape 
slash events dot com slash paranormal. Um, you can learn more. I'll have links in the show notes as well for you to check that out. And then the second event I'm going to be speaking at is the Michigan UFO con, which I had the pleasure of doing a few years ago. Um, and that's going to be September 23rd, excuse me, September 23rd through the 24th in Houghton Lake, Michigan. And I'm going to be giving a talk all about the crazy stuff that's happened in Michigan in terms of UFOs, personal cases that I've investigated and famous historical things that have happened there as well, including things with Gerald Ford and obviously J. Allen Hynek and swamp gas and everything in between. Um, so I hope you can join me in Missouri at the Strange Tales Midwest Conference of the Unknown, their first event, which is going to be really cool, August 5th through the 7th. And then again, Michigan UFO Con, September 23rd through the 24th. Again, I want to thank everyone in the chat for joining us tonight. I want to thank our guest, Graham, my co-host, Chrissy, and everyone who supports the show, whether it's through Super Chat, Super Sticker, or Patreon as well. If you do want to become a Patreon member, we have tons of bonus content and um, interviews and stuff like that. Over there, you get early editions of the show as well every week. Um, you can go to patreon.com slash skies. I'm going to play a promo for the Patreon right after this. And um, yeah, would love to have you guys over there as well and join in on the bonus fun content we got. But um, that is it for tonight, guys. Thank you so much for spending your Sunday evening or morning with us. I really do appreciate it. And um, stay tuned for our interview with Avi Loeb coming to you on the 14th. That will be a live stream. We hope you'll join us as well for that. There'll be links to that on Twitter and in the show notes. And other than that, as usual, keep your feet on the ground but never stop searching somewhere in the skies. Have a great night, guys. We'll talk soon. Keep looking up. Somewhere in the Skies is produced by Third Kind Productions in association with the Entertainment One Podcast Network. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com.